Uh, we are picking up in Genesis again uh, with the life of Jacob this time. And we've looked at the lives of Adam. We've looked at Noah, Abraham, and Isaac. And we'll actually conclude our look at the book of Genesis with Jacob's story. Years ago, uh, Derek Lewandowski worked through the Gospel of Joseph. Uh, and so that's why we are ending with Jacob's story. You can go and listen to Joseph's story if you would like. Uh, but the title for today's message is The Heel. The Heel. In professional wrestling, a heel is a wrestler who is portraying the villain. It's the bad guy. It's uh, someone who will do whatever it takes to win, often breaking the rules to get there, trying to win at any cost. Maybe it's a well-aimed chair to the head while the ref's back is turned, right? Now, when I was a kid, uh, again, confession time, I liked watching what was then called the WWF. I was not allowed to watch the WWF, but I watched the WWF. My favorite, my mom's watching, so I'll hear about this. My favorite wrestler was a heel, though sometimes he was the fan favorite as well. He often played the role of the anti-hero. Stone Cold Steve Austin. When his music hit, the sound of the glass breaking, the crowd would go wild. And if he hit his opponent with the finishing move, the Stone Cold Stunner, well, it was game over. He was a heel. He was a fake heel, but he was a heel. Jacob, how do you connect the dots between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Jacob? Well, Jacob was a heel. In fact, that's what his name means, heel. Ironically enough, he would also sort of become a wrestler later on in his life. Uh, more on that in a few weeks. Now, there are many Bible lessons and teachers that have interpreted the accounts of these figures in the Bible, especially those in the Old Testament, through a moral hermeneutic. That is, a manner of interpretation that treats the stories as essentially moral lessons, applying to our lives the rights and the wrongs, all the good and bad examples. But the problem with that is, first of all, it's not how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. And secondly, when you run into a character like Jacob, our heel, what do you do? Because if we're being honest about Jacob, he's pretty despicable. He's not a good guy. And yet, God uses him. So when I see the accounts of men and women in the scriptures, I'm continually blown away by the fact that their lives are far from good or altogether most of the time, these stories are full of people who are messy and probably more like a heel than a hero. I'm grateful for this because I can read their stories and like C.S. Lewis, I can say, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. God chooses to use broken, sinful, messy people to further his kingdom all throughout history. In Jacob's life, we'll see how God uses even the deceptive seedy parts of his life to further the story of redemption. And this morning, we'll unpack Genesis 27 by looking at the deception, the blessing, and the fallout. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us this morning. We thank you uh, that you've brought us together. And we just ask that you would bless our time together as we've sung, as we've uh, been encouraged already, as we listen to uh, this message, and as we sing again at the end. Lord, I just ask that we would be encouraged and uh, just lifted in our faith, and that we would go from here um, just full again of your love for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at the deception. Now, this is another long story, um, and so we won't be reading all of this passage, Genesis 27. Uh, But really, to get the full picture of what's going on, we do need to look back a couple of chapters. Uh, When we're first introduced to Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob. So turn with me to Genesis 25, 27 through 34. It'll be on the screen as well. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Well, Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the first thing we see here is a little glimpse into the characteristics of these sons and the relational dysfunction in this family. Scholars have taken this name Esau to mean hairy. He was a hairy baby. Uh, That's how he's described when he's born. He's a hairy baby. And Jacob, is, his name is formed from the same Hebrew word for heel. And in the verb form, it carries the idea of grasping at the heel so as to try to trip someone up. Jacob is named this when he comes out of the womb, holding on to the heel of his hairy brother. <laughs> and so we're introduced to hairy and heel. <laughs> we see Esau was an outdoorsman, an avid hunter, and that Jacob was a quiet man and dwelt among the tents. Now, uh, this is not just indicating that Jacob stayed indoors all day, uh, though maybe I could relate to him a little bit more if he did. Likely, this description actually describes the fact that he worked with the flocks. He was a shepherd. And as you see his whole story unfold, this will make a lot of sense because he's a very successful shepherd. We'll also see that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. We're not really told why this favoritism. There are a few clues, but nothing explicit. It could have been that Isaac saw himself in his son Esau. We'll find out how much he loves a good stew from wild game, as Esau himself obviously did. Maybe they were foodies, and they shared that love of a good stew. Maybe Isaac loved hunting. Maybe when he was younger, he was a hunter. But another clue comes from a word the Lord spoke to Rebekah in uh, Genesis 25, verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. This word given to Rebekah could have been the reason for her favoritism toward Jacob. And maybe it even played a small part into Isaac's favoritism towards Esau. Perhaps Rebekah had shared this word with Isaac. And Isaac didn't really want that to be the case because of his fondness for Esau. 
Esau was the oldest. And according to tradition, he is the one that would receive the majority of the inheritance. He would be the head of the clan. And perhaps he didn't want Esau serving Jacob. But we really don't know because nothing is said explicitly. But what we do know is that this favoritism seen here in chapter 25 is a foreshadowing of the dysfunction to come in this family. It's a pattern in this family. We'll see it again, uh, not only between Isaac and, and Rebekah and Esau and Jacob, but we'll also see Jacob will favor Joseph and Benjamin over his other sons, which will lead to more fracturing in the family. We see in chapter 25 that Esau returns one day from hunting, and he is starving. He's willing to do something foolish. He sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Now, I make a pretty good Irish stew. Uh, Olive loves it. It's family favorite. I don't know if it's worth selling a birthright over, no matter how hungry you are. Wait till you have it. Now, I'm sure if you've heard this story before, you've heard it from the side of what an idiot Esau is. He's just reckless. He doesn't care about God or his birthright. And that certainly is there, maybe even clearer a little bit in the Hebrew. Uh, What he says in the Hebrew uh, is literally, let me gulp down this red. The red! He sounds like a barbarian. Even the word for eating, I I use the word gulping there, is really the word used to describe an animal gulping down food. And so, yes, he treats the birthright with contempt for this stew. But Jacob is the heel grabber. And he treated his brother with contempt. He's a schemer, and he's trying to constantly get ahead of his older brother. And the speed with which he puts this all together when Esau comes in demanding some stew is astounding. He sizes up the situation and says, sell me your birthright now. Do it now. Do it now. The birthright is an Eastern tradition, and it includes the headship of the clan. It's a double share of the inheritance. Esau was promising this to Jacob for a bowl of stew. And we have seen previously how wealthy this family was, how God had blessed them in that way. Was that stew worth it? This instant, this incident and the favoritism of their parents helps to really set the stage for what comes in chapter 27. So let's read uh, 27 verse 1 uh, through verse 4. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, when you picture this in your mind, you might think Isaac is old, he's lying in bed, and that's pretty accurate. Uh, He's around 130 years old when this happens. And he's feeling like his death is imminent. And so he calls for Esau. But the interesting thing is that Isaac would go on to live for another 50 years. He must have been pretty miserable. Isaac was about 40 years old when he married Rebekah. He was about 60 years old when his sons were born. And now he's around 130 years old. So perhaps the more interesting thing about this is that it means that Esau and Jacob were in their 70s during this situation. I always pictured them as maybe being like young adults in their 20s or something, just the way that they were 
you know, acting with such, uh, you know, selfish means and whatnot. Now, certainly it's true that during this time in history, people aged differently. They lived longer. So maybe being in your 70s was a bit more like being in your 50s today. We just don't really know how that aging process went. I mean, we know that Sarah, when she was 89, described herself as old and worn out. Um, But, you know, here Jacob is in his 70s. So, you know, at at the bare minimum, we can say he's older than perhaps we pictured. He's not this young, ambitious, you know, teenager. I think this is helpful. It helps us to see the story in its rightful historical place. It gives us some perspective. The heel has been a heel his entire life. And I think as well, it's comforting. It's comforting to know that God often works very slowly. And that may seem bizarre that that's comforting, but when you sit there and wonder, what, you know, God, where are you? What are you doing? Look at the lives of these people in Scripture and realize that God works slowly. He's not ignoring you. He just moves in a different speed than we would maybe expect. And we also know that God will continue to work in and through his people into their later years. Isaac's eyes were dim. He may have been what we would call legally blind. This is an important detail as the story unfolds. Uh, We'll notice that he's not seeing clearly. He calls to Esau, notice the language here, his older son. Scholars agree that the writer, through his choice of words, is trying to paint the picture that, you know, just as we saw in chapter 25, Isaac favors Esau and Rebekah favors Jacob. Isaac tells Esau, go hunt, prepare some delicious food, such as I love. He still loves some good food. Isaac knows it's time to pass the blessing of God's promises on to his son. Though he doesn't know if he'll soon die, he does know that it's the right time to pass the blessing on. So Esau leaves, and we discover over the next few verses that Rebekah has been listening in. She goes and speaks to Jacob, her son, familial favoritism. She instructs Jacob what to do. Go to the flock, bring some good young goats, and we'll make some delicious food. Maybe Isaac's taste buds have faded a little bit because he seems to not be able to tell the difference between goats and wild game. She tells him to bring it to Isaac and get that blessing, but Jacob raises some objections here. Verses 11 and 12, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. But what troubles Jacob here the most about their plan of deception is not whether it's right or wrong, not how it might affect his brother, but that he'll get seen for what he is, that he'll be caught being deceptive. The NASB translates it this way, I'll be like a deceiver in his sight. So he knows that Isaac might see him for who he is. Rebecca in verse 13 says, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So Jacob, I'll take the curse. You just go do what I said. Rebecca is all in on this deception. Rebecca has Jacob wear Esau's clothes. So he'll smell a little bit more like Esau. She covers his arms and neck with the skins of goats. So he'll feel a little bit more like Harry. The outfit complete, she sends him to see Isaac. And in verses 18 through 25, we see the deception unfold. Jacob goes in, and in verses 19 and 20, we find the first two lies. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. I am Esau your firstborn. 
the Lord your God granted me success. He lies. And he takes the Lord's name in vain. Just a note, the, taking the Lord's name on vain is not necessarily a reference to you know, cuss words. It's using the Lord's name in a vain way. Jacob is saying that the Lord did something that the Lord didn't. Then in verse 24, he lies again when his father asks, are you really Esau? I am. Now it's easy to blame Esau for his contempt for the birthright and his seeming contempt for doing things God's way. Uh, We see in chapter 25 that he married two Hittite women and that caused a lot of problems in the family. It's easy to blame Isaac for his seeming disregard of the word of the Lord that the older would serve the younger. But we cannot ignore Rebekah and Jacob's deception just because it seems to bring about God's plan for Jacob. In all of this, we have a story of competing interests. We have a family full of, dis- excuse me, full of dysfunction. The plan of Rebekah and Jacob is full of nasty, selfish scheming. This family is a mess. Author Chad Bird writes, and here smack dab in the middle of this mess, this mess, remember, which is God's holy and chosen people, we have the Lord driving up, stepping out, and surveying the scene to make sure that whatever these silly humans do, his good and gracious will most certainly shall be done. The reality is God does not condone this deception, but God is not hampered by our weaknesses or our stupid decisions. He is not hampered by our sins. God's will cannot be thwarted. Now, it would have gone much better for this family had they heard the word of the Lord and obeyed, had they trusted him, had they looked to his wisdom. And we'll soon see the fallout of their choices, of their scheming, which all could have been avoided. And perhaps as we read this, we can see a little bit about ourselves in it. If we look close enough, Jacob wanted to be the firstborn. He wanted the blessing. He had already swindled the birthright, but he wants it all. He's dressed up, disguised as someone else. And maybe he always wanted his father to look at him just once the way that he looks at Esau. We've all at one time or another wanted the same. We've wanted to be noticed, to be blessed, to be the favorite. We've often covered ourselves metaphorically in the clothes of someone else so we can feel and smell like someone we're not. Sometimes to get ahead, sometimes to be noticed. Perhaps it's in our careers, in our relationships, or even with religion. We attempt to get favor by trying to look like someone else. It's easy to do that with religion, even in the life of the church. Maybe we find that it's easier to share some pieces of our lives that aren't the best at the moment, but maybe we don't share the scarier bits. We don't want to be seen as having too many problems, too many fears, too many temptations. So we pull on the goat skins, so to speak, to cover ourselves. And I just want to encourage you today that Jesus loves the you beneath the goat skins. He loves you in spite of the goat skins. Jacob will get what he wants, and I do believe that he would have anyways. But he gets it through his deception. And you know, throughout Jacob's lives, these, his life, these things will pop up over and over again. You know, with Abraham, we had kind of like highs and lows and highs. There were a fair amount of 
good moments in Abraham's life. Jacob's life is kind of like a continually low point as he schemes his way. And, and perhaps there's, there's a few moments of good things, but it's mostly even, even the good moments come in the pit of despair for him. You know, our ways of struggling, our weaknesses, all those unwelcome characteristics, they do come back again and again in our lives at times. And we want them to go away. And perhaps as we are being transformed by the Holy Spirit, some of them do go away. Or at least they hinder us less than they used to. But the reality is that they don't all go away, and and definitely not in a quick manner. But what you can expect as a believer in Christ, as a child of God, is that the very presence of Jesus is with you, despite your sin. Now, this doesn't excuse sin. Jesus comes to us in our struggle with sin and continues to transform us. As Dane Ortland writes in his book, Gentle and Lonely, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Despite our weaknesses, confusions, and stumblings that we have in this life, he is with us. We have his life in us. He is giving us himself in all sorts of ways and situations, including through one another. So yes, Jacob deceived, he schemed, also that he would receive the blessing. So let's look at the blessing. Let's read verses 26 through 29. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near me, or come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. And he said, see the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is the blessing. So what is it? Why is it important? Our English word for blessing is a bit weak. It doesn't convey to us too much about what uh, a blessing is. Uh, we think of it as something nice said, uh, you know, maybe after someone sneezes. Uh, you know, or, or we say a blessing when we sit down to eat. Uh, maybe it's when we say something nice or serve someone, uh, you know, that we've blessed them. And perhaps in the Christian context, we extend it to mean a, uh, you know, a real way that you have ministered to me at a deep spiritual level more than just nice things said. But without understanding this blessing, it can be difficult to understand this passage. We do learn a few things about blessing in this narrative. We learn that whatever the blessing was, Rebecca and Jacob believed it was something that they could steal. It's something that they could take through cunning deception. And we learn later on in this passage that the blessing was unretractable. No take backs. It it couldn't be taken back once it was pronounced. So what is it? A blessing in the Bible, when the Lord is in it, and that's key, is seen as determinative of destiny. As the Spirit of God moves upon the one pronouncing the blessing, the one blessing discerns what God has in store for the one receiving the blessing, what God has made them to be, what gifts that God has given them. And at the same time, the blessing encourages, affirms, and empowers a person toward what God has for them. So it discerns a person, what God has for them, and then it somehow empowers them towards that. This particular blessing is tied directly to God's covenantal promise. 
We saw this a while back in Abraham's story when God blessed Abraham for the first time. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This blessing uh, that here goes from Isaac to Jacob, even though he thought it was Esau, is the passing on of the Abrahamic covenant to the next in the line to carry forward the line of the promised seed. The spirit of God is in it. He moves upon Isaac, even in such a way that he, you know, though Isaac thinks it's Esau, God works in such a way that he discerns who Jacob will be. And he pronounces this blessing. We see here that God providentially uses all kinds of human actions, good, bad, mixed, to carry out his promised purposes. Now this, again, is not to be taken as approval of the sinful actions of this family. Rather, God works in spite of sinful actions to achieve his good ends. This doesn't mean that there is no fallout or consequences. In fact, we'll soon see that there is. But God's purposes will come to pass. Passage I'm prone to quoting often, Job 42, verse 2. Job says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Joseph, Jacob's son, would say this to his brothers who had sold him off into slavery in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And Paul writes these familiar words, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The good news of the gospel also shows us that this blessing given to Abraham that was passed down to Isaac and passed down to Jacob, and Jacob would pass it down to his sons and so on, ultimately finds its accumulation in Jesus Christ. And now all those who have believed in Christ through faith have received this blessing. Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. The Bible talks a lot about blessing. And perhaps sometimes we feel like we have to chase after blessing. We might read the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and think we have to do all sorts of things in order to be blessed. Well, brothers and sisters, we have this blessing already in Christ. Unlike Jacob, who thought he had to chase after blessing, we are blessed in Christ, as Paul said. And now the believer who looks at Jesus' words in Matthew 5 can, can say all of those things about themselves. All those blessed are statements we can recognize that they're actually descriptive of us in Christ. We are children of God. We are part of the kingdom of God. We have received mercy. We have received comfort. And yes, still we'll receive comfort. We have an inheritance with Christ. We have all of these things, and some we will receive the fullness of when Christ returns. Romans 4 says you are blessed if your sins are forgiven. And Ephesians 1 says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How do you receive blessing today? Well, the words of the blessing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob point out that the one who curses you will be cursed, and the one who blesses you will be blessed. The scriptures make it clear that is about Jesus. And so if you reject Christ, there is only a curse remaining. 
but for the one who receives him in faith, blessing. And so this blessing is pronounced over you. Life in Christ, forgiveness of sins. Your destiny is his very life. His life is your future. God has life in store for you. Live in that blessing, not chasing after blessing. Live by trusting in his son, Jesus. We don't have to chase after it. We have it. But we see that Jacob chased it. And though ultimately he would have received it, he acted deceitfully to steal it from Esau. And though God used these actions for his glory and for Jacob's good, there were still consequences. So what is the fallout? Jacob, the heel, who had grabbed Esau's heel when they were born, who has always been trying to get ahead, has finally pulled ahead of his brother. And let's look at the cost. Verses 30 through 40, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept and away from the dew of heaven on high. That might be a formatting error. Give me one second. There we go. Then his father answered him and said to him, Blessed or behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. I've been using a certain formatting on Adobe PDF, and it sometimes throws things out of place. You know, when we read this passage and we see this kind of secondary blessing that Isaac gives to Esau. Um, It doesn't really sound a whole lot like a blessing, does it? You know, it's hard not to feel some sympathy for Esau here. He comes back, he prepares the food, he comes to Isaac, it dawns on Isaac and Esau what's happened. Isaac trembled very violently. Literally, this is he seized with violent trembling. He's despondent. He realizes that he's been deceived and he's pronounced this blessing on Jacob But even as he responds, as the words are coming out of his mouth, Isaac is realizing what all this means. And he resigns himself to it. He recognizes that he cannot take the blessing back. It can't be undone. He says to Jacob, or says about Jacob, yes, and he shall be blessed. Isaac was angry. He was confused and hurt, but he also realized something important about this whole situation. First, God will work through the ones he chooses, even if they're failures, crooks, cheats and liars. 
God will show scandalous grace in the lives of unworthy people. Secondly, he is realizing that despite his plans, he has in some ways, whether knowingly or not, worked against God's plans to continue the blessing through Jacob and not Esau. God said the elder brother would serve the younger. Isaac had chosen the stronger, the obvious choice, the the world's way, if you will. And so Isaac, by resigning himself to God's plan, is saying, I was wrong. I'm not going to fight it anymore. So the rest of the story unfolds to show what was once a dysfunctional family is now a shattered family. Esau's angry. It's easy to understand why. Uh, He even says, you know, it's not... Is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has cheated me these two times? He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. He's thinking back, you know, all the years back when that happened, uh, however long that was, you know, he's, he's remembering that as well. This Hebrew name of Jacob, again, means heel. It's related to the verb akav, which means, which Esau uses here, meaning to trip up, to trick, to cheat, to supplant. It's kind of like Esau saying, is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has Jacobed me these two times. Isaac pronounces another blessing on Esau, but it's bleak. And in it is the word of the Lord that Rebekah had heard. Esau, you shall serve your brother. So the fallout is brokenness. Esau threatens to kill Jacob when Isaac dies. Rebekah has to send Jacob away to save his life. And just based on scripture, it doesn't appear that Rebekah ever sees Jacob again. I imagine the family life between Rebecca, Isaac, and Esau was pretty bleak after this. Pretty devastated. Trust shattered. Though Jacob receives this blessing, he has to flee. So what do we do with this bleak tale? Because I hate to kind of end it right there because it's pretty bleak. It's full of sorrow. Well, thankfully for Jacob, this actually isn't the end of his story though it's still quite devastating. And there are some ways that we can apply this to our lives, some practical ways. Uh, Favoritism in parenting is destructive. We should reject favoritism and seek to love our children equally, all while trusting the Lord with their future and his plans for them. Esau pursued instant gratification rather than waiting for what really mattered when he demanded some stew. So wait on the Lord. Don't settle for the satisfaction of earthly things, no matter how good that stew is. Jacob was a heel in every sense of the word. He schemed, he plotted, he didn't trust God to do what he already had promised. And so we ought to reject lying and scheming to get ahead in life. Though the believer is forgiven, living like this will certainly bring about consequences and brokenness and relational dysfunction. But the moral of the story here is not simply be fair with your children. Bless each one equally. The moral isn't wait for the good things in life. The moral of the story isn't even don't lie or scheme to achieve good things. Those are all important, but they're not the the key moral that this story hangs on. Tim Keller says it's this. God brings his scandalous intervening grace into the lives of people who don't seek it, don't deserve it, continually resist it, and don't even appreciate it after they've been saved by it over and over and over and over again. It's God's scandalous intervening grace. That's, that's the key to this story. Even in the darkness and bleakness of the story, we see some pretty beautiful glimpses of the gospel. Esau was the firstborn. But in the book of Colossians, Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. And when he went to the cross, he forsook his firstborn blessing. 
Rebecca told Jacob that she would take the curse of his father's anger. Jesus took the curse of our sin, his father's wrath upon himself when he became a curse for us. Jacob was dressed in Esau's clothes and covered in goatskins. Jesus dressed up like us. He became flesh like us, also that we could be dressed like him, clothed in his righteousness. If we try to put on the skins of righteousness, if we put on um, any type of uh, facade of righteousness, anything that is outside of grace and faith, it'll never work. Wisdom won't work. Cunning won't work. Self-effort won't work. Doing everything you can to be good won't work. It's just filthy robes. It's just goatskins. You can't fool God with your goatskins. But Jesus took your goatskins on the cross so that you could have his pure robes of righteousness. Jesus forsook his blessing, and now when you believe in him, you are treated as the firstborn. You have become one of the firstborn. Hebrews 12.24 talks about us as the church of the firstborn. Somehow we are all firstborn. I'm a middle kid, so that works really good for me. We're part of the church of the firstborn. We've become, like Jesus, our brother. We're now clothed in his robes. We smell like him. We feel like him. We have become like him because he has taken us into himself. And I want to close this morning with this last quote from Chad Bird uh, from his book, Limping with God. I I highly recommend that book, uh, Limping with God. He says this, Isn't it amazing to think that while on the cross, dying for evil, dying for ambition, dying for all the sins of humanity, the humble Lord of love lifted up his heel and brought it down on the head of the serpent. In a splendid irony, the Father gave us a heel, a Jacob to whom we can hold fast as we emerge from death to life again in him. Jesus has the better and truer heel, and he crushed the serpent's head with it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that Jesus became flesh and he put on the, the goatskin, so to speak, on our behalf. He took our sin upon himself, he who knew no sin, so that we might be like him that we might be forgiven and pure and clean, dressed in his robes of righteousness. And so now, Father, when you look at us, you no longer see all of our false pretenses, all of our sin, all of our mess, all of our mistakes, all the brokenness. You see the blood of your son, Jesus. You see us as pure, sons and daughters. Father, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, I I ask as we consider these words, as maybe we think about them throughout the week, we would not grow despondent over our own shortcomings, but rather we would see your scandalous grace in our life, how you took us despite our weaknesses and despite our sin. And you are transforming us. You are changing us to be more like your son. Father, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.